Hello, and welcome to Writers on Writing on KUCI 88.9 FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and the show, as always, is dedicated to writers, books, and publishing. And uh, so much that we do is dedicated to books, writers, and publishing. Um, if you want to know more, you can always go to penonfire.com and uh, look up upcoming guests and uh, Pen on Fire Salon Speaker Series guests. Uh, I think in September it's Susan Strait and Tatjana Soli. Today we have a wonderful show for you. My guests are Chris Bojalian and Randy Dotinga. First up is Chris Bojalian. Chris is the author of 15 books, including the New York Times bestsellers The Night Strangers, Secrets of Eden, Skeletons at the Feast, The Double Bind, Before You Know Kindness, The Law of Similars, and Midwives. Chris won the New England Society Book Award for The Night Strangers in 2012, as well as the New England Book Award in 2002, and the Anahid Literary Award in 2000. His novel Midwives was a number one New York Times bestseller, a selection of Oprah's Book Club, a Publishers Weekly Best Book, and a New England Booksellers Association Discovery Pick. His work has been translated into more than 25 languages and three times become movies, Secrets of Eden, Midwives, and Past the Bleachers. He is a Sunday columnist for Gannett's Burlington Free Press since 1992, and uh, his new novel is The Sandcastle Girls, and uh, that's primarily what we'll be focusing on this morning with with little darts here and there to other books that Chris has done. Hi, Chris. Barbara, how are you? I'm good. You know, you just, one after another, you uh, keep hitting them out of the park, and I'm sure we all want to know your secret. You know, how how is it that you do this? You, It, it seems that the, the subject matter, your novel, um, your novels always kind of hit on something that uh, so many people want to read about. Well, of course, not this time. The Sandcastle Girls is very successful, but it is about the slaughter you know next to nothing about. Um, the Sandcastle Girls is a big, sweeping, epic love story set in the midst of the Armenian Genocide. And while there are probably more people in Los Angeles who know about the genocide than in the rest of the country because there's such a large, vibrant, vigorous Armenian-American community, the fact is the Sandcastle Girls is about a part of history that most of America is completely oblivious to. Well, yeah, I mean, it, um, you know, I, I know about it somewhat because of um, a friend and student of mine, but um, I am just so curious why it's been so hush-hush. I mean, everybody knows about the Holocaust of the 40s, and if you realize that there was an Armenian genocide, and it's still controversial that it even happened. Um, it is controversial that it happened, but it shouldn't be controversial. The only reason why it's controversial is because of um, the political the lack of political spine on this issue by the United States and a variety of other nations who are allies with Turkey. Um, the reality is that um, in 1915, in the Ottoman Empire, there were roughly 2 million Armenians. By the end of the First World War, all but 500,000 would be dead, systematically slaughtered by the Turkish government, either machine-gunned by Turkish soldiers and gendarmes, um, massacred by their neighbors in well-orchestrated killing parties or marched into the unforgiving Syrian desert where they would die slowly of dehydration, exhaustion, dysentery, and thirst. Um, I think there are a couple of reasons why most people today don't know about the death of 1.5 million people. First of all, um, once upon a time, people did know. The New York Times alone ran over 145 articles about the massacres of the Armenians, culminating in the July 13, 1919 article, front page, about the conviction for crimes against humanity by a Turkish tribunal of the three leaders of the Ottoman government, Talat, Enver, and Jamal Pasha. They were sentenced to death. Um, but news 
cycles move on. There was the Great Depression. Um, so much, and of course, you know, the Armenians were, were massacred in the desert. Um, anyway, so by the time Hitler was ready to invade Poland on August 22nd, 1939, he was able to command his officers, be merciless, be merciless. After all, who today remembers the annihilation of the Armenians? Um, now, right now, Turkey continues to, to deny that there was a genocide, dramatically um, decreases the number of people who perished in the slaughter, um, and it's still a crime in Turkey to refer to it as a genocide, um, with, a, with the result that um, Turkey and its allies sweep this issue under the rug and, as you said, make it hush-hush. So, so talk a little bit about... How about the genesis of the book? I mean, you're you're Armenian. You've you've had this in your you, you've known this. You've you've grown up with the history, and now, however many books later, fifteen books later, you um, have written about it. Yeah, I first tried to write about the Armenian genocide in 1993. Um, between my novels, Water Witches and Midwives, I wrote a novel about the genocide. And it was terrible. I mean, I, I wish I could say it was apprentice work, but it was merely amateurish work. Um, moreover, by the time I finished it, Carol Edgarian published her remarkable novel of the genocide, Rise Euphrates. And I remember thinking to myself, why does the world need my take on this story when with Carol Edgarian's, when we have the work of Nancy Krikorian, Peter Balakian, and, of course, Franz Werfel's magisterial epic, The Forty Days of Musadah. And so I sent that manuscript I wrote to my alma mater in western Massachusetts for my papers are archived and went ahead and wrote Midwives. Seventeen years later, in 2010, I tried again. And I tried again for a couple of reasons. First of all, because the story is so important. There's a direct link between the Armenian Genocide, the Holocaust, the Cambodian killing fields, Serbia, Rwanda, Darfur. Um, secondly, it is a story that most of the world doesn't know about and should know about. Um, and third, um, my father's health began to deteriorate dramatically in 2009, with the result that I was visiting him in South Florida often. And we would look at the old family photographs. And as I was looking at those photographs, the secrets that my grandparents, genocide survivors both, brought to their graves began to interest me. What did they not tell their children? What did they not tell their grandchildren? And I remember in early February 2010, I was having a cup of coffee in Boston with my good friend Hachig Moradian. Hachig is the editor of the Armenian Weekly here in the U.S., and he knew about my attempt to write about this, um, this story 17 years earlier, and he said to me, when are you going to try again? Not are you going to try again, but, but when. And Hachig is nothing if not persuasive. <laughs> and so I did, I did dive in again. Um, and I think the reason why the book works for me this time, and the first attempt failed so miserably, is that this time it's a love story. It's one of those big, sweeping historical epics that I just love. Books like Atonement, and Cold Mountain, and The English Patient, and Corelli's Mandolin. That's essentially what I was what I was trying to write with the Sandcastle Girls. Big, sweeping, historical love story. Yes, it's the story of the genocide, um, but I don't think people are going to go out and buy this book if you were to say, this is a book about 1.5 million people <laughs> who died in the desert. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of Skeletons at the Feast a, a few books ago of yours, um, which was also a love story, really. I mean, it, it, it dealt with, you know, so, you know, the Holocaust from a, you know, in Poland, from, from that point of view, but it was a love story. Yeah, no, I, I think it was. Um, it was Anna and Colin's love story. Um, it, you know, there was also kind of a, a, um, a road picture, too, in its, own, in its own way. I can't tell you how many readers have said they read Skeletons at the Feast and Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and they said, you know, there were just these, these weird, dystopian, horrific parallels. <laughs> 
interesting. Okay. I never saw it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, me either. But uh, you're listening to Writers on Writing, and I'm with Chris Bojalian, and his new novel is um, The Sandcastle Girls, published by Doubleday. Will you read to us, Chris? Sure, absolutely. I will read. This is um, how the book begins. Okay. When my twin this is the voice. This is the voice of the female version of me, Laura Petrosian. Um, this book is narrated in large chunks by an Armenian-American novelist at midlife who knows too little about her past. And this is Laura talking and how the book begins. When my twin brother and I were small children, we would take turns sitting on our grandfather's lap. There he would grab the rope-like rolls of baby fat that would pull at our waists and balance us on his knees, going, Big belly, big belly, big belly. This was meant as an affectionate, grandfatherly gesture not his subtle way of suggesting that if we didn't lose weight, we would wind up as Jenny Craig testimonials. Just for the record, there's also a chance that when my brother was being bounced on Grandpa's lap, he was wearing a white turtleneck shirt and red velvet knickers. This is the outfit my mother often had him wear when we visited our grandparents, because this was the get-up that, in her opinion, made him look most British. And he had to look British, since she was going to make him sing the 1965 Herman's Hermit's pop hit, I'm Henry VIII, I Am. The song had been popular four years earlier, when she'd given birth to us, and in some disturbingly edible fashion, she'd come to view it as their song. Yep, a fat kid in red velvet knickers singing Hermit's Hermit's with a bad British accent. How is it that no one beat him up? I, in turn, would be expected to sing both sides now, which was marginally more timely. The song had been popular only a year earlier in 1968, but not really any more appropriate. I was four years old and had no opinions at all on love's illusions, but I did, despite the great dollops of Armenian DNA inside me, have waves of blonde spit curls, and so my mother fixated on the lyric bows and flows of angel hair. I wore a blue miniskirt and white patent leather go-go boots. No one is going to beat me up, but it is a wonder that a social welfare agency never suggested to my mother that she was dressing her daughter like a four-year-old hooker. My grandfather, both of my grandparents for different reasons, was oblivious to rock and roll. And I have no idea what he made of his grandchildren decked out for American bandstand. Moreover, if 1969 would have the soundtrack, invariably it would have depended upon Woodstock, not Herman's Hermits or Judy Collins. Nevertheless, the only music I recall at my grandparents' house that year was the sound of the Ud, when my grandfather would play Armenian folk songs or strum it like madman while my aunt belly danced for all of us. And why my aunt was belly dancing remains a mystery to me, the only time Armenian girls belly danced was when they were commandeered into a sheik's harem and with a choice of dying in the desert or accepting the tattoos and learning to shimmy. Trust me, you will never see an Armenian girl belly dancing on So You Think You Can Dance. And that is the first page and a half of the prologue. Mm, thank you so much. That was Chris Bojalian reading from the Sandcastle Girls. Um, you know, talk a little bit about writing from a female point of view because you you've done this in other books so successfully, and um, and you've you've written from a transgender point of view. I mean, you're you're able to pretty much do anything that you want in point of view, and and I know a lot of writers who, especially new writers who who are a little, uh, I don't know, timid about writing from the point of view of the opposite gender or you know. Any anyone sort of different, too different from them, another race. Um, yeah, talk yeah. about that. You know, I, I love writing across gender, um, and uh, you know the fact is, I think your gender is a lot more interesting than my gender. I think the only reason why golf was invented was so that men would talk to each other. <laughs> um, you know, perhaps my favorite review I've ever done was way back in 1996 for midwives it was in library journal and the review concluded 
And the added benefit of this novel is the candor and the honesty with which Chris Bojalian writes about her experiences in labor <laughs> and what it must have been like for her to give birth. Um, um, I, I, I tend to approach writing across gender um, with you know, really just two basics. I begin with the universalities that link us as people rather than with the um, gender idiosyncrasies that separate us. Mm. And then um, I begin to, to layer in what seem to me the, the gender specifics. Um, you know, the clothing, the makeup, um, the, you know, sort of the attitude. And, and it's a great exercise in imagination. What would it be like to be a woman? What would it be like to be a transsexual? What would be those issues? Um, and then finally, I always make sure that I, I'm surrounded by really smart women. Uh, my wife is a great reader. Um, my editor, Jenny Jackson at Doubleday, is a great reader. And they're really smart about stopping me before I kill again and making sure that what I'm doing makes intellectual and aesthetic sense. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it's... Uh you're so so effective doing it and tran you, you mentioned um i think you mentioned transistor radio that was one of my favorite books of yours um it really kind of brought me into a, a world i knew something about but not not nearly as much as i knew after until after i read your book no oh, thank you thank you you are you are very brave to read it it's, you know it's funny when i was writing that book in 1999 it felt very groundbreaking to me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in hindsight, I wonder if, if now, in 2012, it's almost dated, because we are so much more comfortable now with the transgendered um, and the, you know, the LGBT communities. Yeah, though, it took place in Vermont, a little town in Vermont, and I wonder if, if that sort of situation might not get the same exact um, response in, in a little town in Vermont in uh, 2012. Yep, hard to say. We we hard can be say. pretty liberal, but you're right. We can also be pretty reactionary here. Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, the Sandcastle Girls takes Capitol Hill. Talk about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will absolutely. <laughs> One of the great blessings of this book tour. Um, and first, of all, you know, I got to give a big shout out to to Southern California. I know that the show's heard. Um, you know, outside of Southern California, of course, but, you know, you're broadcasting from there. So I have to begin by saying thank you to, to L.A., because this book kicked off in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I had two events in July, on, on Monday, July 16th, the day before it went on sale, and we had over 500 people, um, thanks to Southern California and the Armenian American community there, which was just a huge kickoff for a novel. It was great. Um, and then another part of the book tour, two weeks later, um, because it was 22 cities, was Capitol Hill. And one of the things that the Armenian National Committee of America put together was an opportunity for me to speak on Capitol Hill about this novel and why legislative genocide recognition is important to me um, and why I would love to see um, the U.S. Congress finally pass legislation categorizing the slaughter of 1915 as a genocide. I know it was just a tricky day. I met one-on-one -on -one with a number of senators and congressmen. I spoke before about 200 people. I'm well over that. You know, about 220 people on Capitol Hill about this issue. Um, and yeah, and here's, here's why it's important and why that Capitol Hill day mattered. A couple of years ago, I was at the University of Texas Hillel, and I was listening to a real a real hero of mine speaker, Gerda Weissman-Klein. Gerda's a Holocaust survivor, survived a couple of concentration camps and two death marches in 1945, um, and she was one of the, the inspirations for the character Cecile in Skeletons at the Feast. Mm -hmm. She published her, her memoir, All But My Life, in 1957. So listening to her speak at Hillel, and somebody said to her, Gerda, what do you say to Holocaust deniers? And she shrugged and said, I really don't have to say much. I just say, ask Germany what happened, because Germany doesn't deny it. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's part of the big difference between the Holocaust and the Armenian Genocide. Turkey does deny it. And as a result, Turkey's allies, like the U.S., deny it. And that means that um, we don't have that same kind of recourse as Armenian Americans. And denial, most historians will tell you, is the last stage in a genocide. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's 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 sad. It's very sad. And your book um, is is wonderful. I'm about halfway through it, and it depicts so many things that went on, and reminds me in some ways of a book I read long ago um, by Jerzy Kaczynski called The Painted Bird. In I love The Painted Bird. I oh love that God. book, too. I actually <laughs> wrote my college um, um, application essay about The Painted Bird. Oh, you're <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Well, it, you know, as I read your book, I keep thinking of the painted bird and how Kaczynski just depicted that Holocaust with such vivid details that I've never forgotten it. I, I think that's probably the first fictional, you know, tale I, I read about it when I was probably in high school or, you know, some long, long ago, and it has stayed yeah. with me ever since. And... It's a great book, and, and you know, and I think one of the parallels, which I hadn't thought of until you just brought it up just now, um, is children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the painted bird is basically about a little boy in the midst of the Holocaust in Poland, um, and it, you know, among my very favorite characters in the Sandcastle Girls is the eight-year-old girl Hatun. Yeah and her slightly older friend, Shushan. Mm. Um, I was never more terrified when I was writing this novel than when I was writing the scenes involving those two children, because, especially after all that, that her tune has witnessed in the desert, I mean, I, just, I was terrified that something horrible was going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you were the, the, I mean, you have so many different characters here, and, and most of them are going through something, and... Um, Again, I, I was reminded of Kaczynski's The Painted Bird, and obviously I, I've never talked with him about about that book or any of his books, but as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking, how is it possible to write this world, stay in that world, create a work of art, and, and not come out of it depressed? So how, how, how is it possible? Because you've, you know, you're, you're bringing um, the Armenian genocide to the consciousness of, you know, hopefully millions, right? And you're, you, you still sound kind of upbeat, and you're still, you know, you're still Chris. You know, in my, you know, in my case, it helps that I have the emotional depth of a mollusk. <laughs> um, and I'm really good at compartmentalizing. Um, when I'm writing a book... You know, I'm literally at my desk writing in the morning, as I was, for example, you know, Eastern Daylight Time a couple hours ago. I am deeply immersed in the characters. But by the time I push my chair away from the computer in the desk, um, I'm pretty chill. Mm-hmm. And and I, I get on with the rest of, of my day. Um, but I will tell you, here, <laughs> here, here is one of the behind-the-curtain secrets. <laughs> It does help me get back into that emotional place I need to be to write a book like The Sandcastle Girls or Skeletons at the Feast, um, some you know, like my darker, big, sweeping epics. Um, I tend to take about 10 or 15 minutes before I write, and I either watch clips, or trailers, usually movie trailers, of appropriate, you know, sort of movies, like in this case, you know, you know, the the, um, the musical of Les Mis with Anne Hathaway and Peter <laughs> Jackman, or, um, you know, specific scenes on YouTube from Schindler's List mm-hmm. um, to, to sort of get in the right frame of mind, um, or, or clips you can find online of the box office, huge box office blockbuster from 1919 about the Armenian Genocide um, based on Aurora Mardinian's memoir, Ravished Armenia. Um, and these are just, you know, just horrific or emotionally wrenching um, operatic moments that get me in the groove that I need to be in to, to write these kinds of books. Mm. And, then, and then at the end of your writing day, you watch cartoons or... <laughs> 
Yes, at the end of my writing morning, I'm usually having lunch and, you know, six months a year on my front porch with my lovely bride or in front of the wood stove another six months a year. And, you know, then I go for a bike ride or I go to the gym and then I come back and I do all of the marketing that my books demand, whatever research my books demand. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm either writing a book set at the end of World War II in Italy and then in 1955. It goes back and forth in time. Um, it's about a serial killer in 1955 who is, is murdering one by one the remnants of a Tuscan nobleman's family that was two in bed with the Nazis in the black shirts. And, um, and yesterday I spent a lot of time in the afternoon with a burn surgeon, and that was traumatizing to understand um, what it's like to you know deal with horrifically burned patients. Mm. That was pretty riveting and pretty horrifying. Mm. Well, I admire you, and I'm so glad to uh, have this book in hand, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time again, Chris. Oh, Barbara, it's always such a <laughs> joy to chat with you. You are the best. You do you do such great work um, um, in print and, of course, on the radio, and you're just such a gift to the writing community, and I thank you so much. Mm, you're a sweetheart. Thank you. Take care. Bye. That was Chris Bajalian. His book is The Sandcastle Girls, published by Doubleday. And uh, do pick it up. I seriously recommend this book. I have loved so many of Chris's books. And uh, this, is, this is right up there with, with them. Skeletons at the Feast, The Law of Similars, Transistor Radio, um, Midwives. He, he just... Keeps knocking them out of the park. We should all be so lucky. Stay tuned um, for the second half of the show. Coming up is Randy Dotinga, a journalist, and so much more. So uh, stay with me, and I'll be right back. And welcome back to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, we're on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. And actually, if you have a smartphone, you can um, go to the KUCI website, KUCI.org. And in the upper right-hand corner, it uh, I think it says Listen Live or you know Listen Now, something or other. And you can hit uh, one of those little links. I hit 128 under MP3, I think it is. And uh, you can you can uh, walk along, do your exercises, whatever you do. You can do it listening to the show. I think that's just so cool. Anyway, I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and uh, my first guest was Chris Bojalian, and coming up is Randy Dotinga. Randy has been a freelancer for 13 years. He reviews books and writes about them for the Christian Science Monitor. He's treasurer of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, which is how I got to know Randy, and he's chair of the upcoming ASJA 2013 Writers Conference that you can find out more about by going to asja.org. And he's speaking to us from his home base in San Diego. Hi, Randy. Hi, Barbara. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm all right. And, you know, as, as I was getting ready for the show this morning and, and thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about, I, you know, I, I want to talk to you about so many writing-related things, but I think before that, I wanted to ask you how you're able to be so upbeat so much of the time. I have never seen you or heard you be irritated with anybody, and uh, in the freelancer's life, it, it seems that irritations abound, and perhaps in any life, irritations abound, so... So, uh, have you always been this way? <laughs> Is it oh, genetic? I've, I've been medicated for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I'm actually pretty uh, optimistic about freelancing and writing in general. Uh, I you hear a lot of people talking about how bad it is and how they can't find assignments and it's it's hard to survive. And uh, there are some people who are doing quite well, uh, who are able to... F- Still find, uh, still find work, and still uh, keep afloat as a as a freelancer. And so I'm, you know, I, I tend to kind of be pessimistic about some things, but I think that there is a lot of room for writers who who are talented, 
who are persistent and who are lucky. I think that's the the key things to be successful in, in freelancing and maybe any kind of endeavor is is to have have some talent, uh, have some persistence, some luck, or some combination thereof of those three things. Interesting. So, talk a little bit about about your your freelancing life and I, I have to sort of make believe I don't know certain things about you because if if I don't do that I you know our readers will, will kind of be in the dark and we'll be listening to an insider sort of conversation and so I want to ask you about being a generalist or a specialist and which you are and and why if that's a great uh, uh, question about that the freelancers often will argue about is it better to be a generalist that you write about several different topics or or be a specialist? I mean, there are some people who specialize in, uh, in writing about Medicare uh, and make a great living doing that because they're they're a specialist who can who can gr- uh, really attract good uh, good pay because they have a very specialized knowledge. And I'm more of a generalist. I think of myself as basically having uh, a little bit of ADHD that I can't focus too much on one topic. So there's about <laughs> maybe five or six different topics that I write about for different clients, and that has worked for me. But like I said, if you're in the freelance world or thinking about it, you'll you'll hear a lot of debate about this, whether it's better to be a specialist or to just tackle a whole bunch of topics. And I, I think it really has to do with what you're comfortable with yourself. If you are, you know, not somebody who's kind of scatterbrained and can handle a whole bunch of different topics, you might be better as a specialist. Mm-hmm. Talk about book reviewing a little bit. We, we've we discussed this, and um, you've done it for quite a while. Talk about um, how you choose the books you review or how they come to you. And, and you know, just you've done it for so long, you must enjoy it. Oh, I, I, yeah, it's a great, uh, it's almost like making your hobby your job. Uh, I tend to review nonfiction, a lot of, uh, of uh, history-type books and books about current events, and these are books that I might read otherwise, and this way I get to actually review them and get a, a little bit of pay. It's Book reviewing is notoriously low paid, and I think most people that do it do it in some, at least in some part because they enjoy it. And uh, the books uh, tend to, uh, tend to come either by assignment from the Christian Science Monitor. My editor will, will ask me to review a book, or I keep an eye on books that are coming up uh, a few months from now. Uh, I get catalogs from publishers. I get review copies sent to me. Um, Publishers Weekly, uh, which is a trade journal for the publishing industry, will review books uh, several months ahead of time, and they can also give me a heads up. Uh, we have a lot of lead time for reviews, so I, we all have time to get the book, uh, read it, review it, and then follow a review that will come out about the time that the book is being published. So there are a variety of routes to to get to me, uh, to get a book to me. You can also... You know, the publisher can send me a book directly, uh, and that's uh, a common thing too. There are these are called review copies, and typically, if you're if you're published by a significant publisher, they will send some review copies out to various reviewers, uh, either on request or just automatically. Yeah. You are listening to Writers on Writing. I'm with Randy Dotinga, and uh, he's a freelancer and so much more. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dotinga. Just like that. R. Dotinga, sorry. Right. So it's R-D-O-T-I-N-G-A. And uh, see what see what's going on, and you can Google his name and see so many articles he's written, and and really just fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff that you, uh, that you write about. And, um, okay, but back to book reviewing. Now, we've talked a little bit about self-publishing, too. And um, do you, so what about self-published books? Do you review those? No, I mean that would never. Do they come to you? Uh, they really don't. I don't think that that self-publishing people realize that I exist, and I, I think it would be very unlikely to for me to review a self-published book, uh, if only because uh, I want to review books that 
are available that our reader can read the review and go to their Barnes and Noble and and buy the book. And self-published books are, are their distribution is often pretty lousy. And the the other problem is that that in the publishing world there are tens of thousands of books being uh, being published every year. And why would I add self-published books to that list of books to think about and to consider. Uh, it's already a challenge to look through, you know, figure out which books of the tens of thousands being published are are worth my attention. Yeah. And uh, when many of them obviously aren't aren't very good, and then you ha- and then to add self-published books to that pile. Uh, and these self-published books, by very definition, have not been vetted by an editor. They, nobody at a publishing house has, has read the book to see if it's uh, any good. Um, so I, I, I'm skeptical about self-publishing for the ordinary writer. Um, the ordinary writer who, write, who publishes a self-published book will probably sell in the dozens of copies, maybe a hundred or two, and those those are averages that I've seen in the statistics. And uh, I think that in many cases, self-published writers are, are losing money. And I, I I'm a, I'm just a skeptic in general of self-publishing, but I think in some cases, if you know what you're doing, I do know some people who have made great success at self-publishing books. And I think that's because they know about marketing. They know about the ins and outs of of publishing and have the know-how to, to pick up what they're not getting from an actual publisher. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've been noticing the last couple of years a lot of, uh, I mean, more than I would expect, a lot of self-published authors getting print space, getting articles, front-page articles, um, on newspapers, I mean, not not the New York Times or, you know, major, major newspapers, but, you know, big enough, big enough. And, and it's always kind of surprising to me, I think, because um, a lot of the time the books aren't that good. And maybe the topic is really fascinating, but, and maybe the book could have been great if, you know, it had, you know, an editor's attention. But I, I find that really interesting. I'm always curious how much that print, space that print coverage helps uh, the book sell you know i think it could be a matter of that you know somebody sent a the author sent a press release to the local paper mm-hmm. the local paper is thinking ah oh, here's a great feature story about a local author you know and the quality of the book uh might not really enter the equation yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh but i i do think any exposure uh, like that can can at least uh, sell a few copies. Sure. Uh, so I think the key is if you're going to self-publish, make sure that you know what you're doing, that you know uh, that you're thinking about a, a great cover design, you're thinking about copy editing, you're thinking about marketing. You're you can do all these things that a publisher would do for you. Uh, I think too many self-published authors just think I have a great book and I just publish it and the world will come running to my door mm-hmm. and that's not how publishing works. Yeah, why do you think uh, why do you think people ultimately self-publish? Do you think it's because they can't get an agent or they, the agent couldn't get an editor or because they're impatient and they just want it out there? I, I think it probably has a lot to do with ego. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you think you have a great book uh, but no publishers are paying attention or you just um, don't want to bother with all that business of finding an agent and then finding a publisher. Uh, I think in a lot of cases uh, the books aren't very good. Uh, they're they're buying. Uh, you can you can just tell sometimes. I see in the New York Times book review on Sunday they'll have an ad, uh, a full page of mentions of self-published books from from a particular company, and you can just look at it at the little blurbs of just two or three sentences about the book, and you can tell this book is not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you look at the cover design, and you think that's not good either. And the title is bad, and everything is awful, and. Uh, and that's the the problem with with uh, self publishing, and also the great strength is that there's nobody vetting it. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can you can get great work out there uh, of your own work uh, without having to go through anybody. But it also allows a lot of a lot of uh, really terrible work because uh, there's nobody saying no. We're not going to print this. Yeah. 
We have a few minutes left with Randy Dotinga, and uh, again, you can follow him on Twitter at rdotinga, and uh, Google his name, and you can go to the ASJ website and read about next year's conference, which you are sharing. I am. Uh, and just to uh, tell your listeners about us, uh, we're called the American Society of Journalists and Authors, and we are a group of about 1,200 uh, freelance writers who have been published in major publications and book authors. And we we uh, uh, kind of uh, advocate for independent writers and help each other to survive in our careers. And our conference is held every year uh, in the spring in New York City. Uh, we have uh, one day, we'll have one day for members and then two days for the general public to come and uh, listen to speakers and go to workshops and network. And this year's theme is uh, Reignite. And it's all about uh, uh, starting, uh, turning your career around reigniting your career, and also reigniting the conference itself. We're going to be trying a lot of new things, uh, and we're pretty excited about it. That's great, and I'm so glad you're sharing it, too, because, you know, I have that, I have that sense that, that, it, that it, uh, lots of interesting things will be going on because you're sharing it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> You know? I, mean, I just like the way you think, and I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with it. I really encourage anybody who who is thinking about freelancing or just starting out, if you can make it to New York uh, next spring, you know, drop by the conference. We'd be happy to see you, and we're really we really want to help uh, writers understand the field and and understand the pros and cons and all the complications like being a self-employed person uh, and dealing with things like taxes and and working alone and of course uh, how do you how do you pitch to editors uh, how do you write a compelling story and how do you how do you break in yeah and i and i want to say too that that um, the conference is pretty much put on by volunteers it is. I mean, yes. you know, uh, you're a volunteer. Everybody's a volunteer that does panels. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and we get some uh, some really high level, uh, high profile writers and authors, and and also a lot of writers and authors who uh, are, aren't famous but have been able to make make a great living at it, and yeah. they can uh, they tell people what they've done and give the secrets to their success. Yeah. So if uh, if you're interested out there, go to asja.org, and you can find all sorts of information about freelancing, about the conference. You can find out, um, you can link to the newsletter, the ASJ Monthly, and we, you know, we put articles in quite quite frequently as we get closer to the conference about what's going on and, and, and so, you know, what you can do in New York while you're there and all kinds of things. Um, so, so yeah, anyway, so let's get back to, for we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to ask you about micro-publishers or publishers that will publish you but give you no advance, and if, what you think of them, or if those books come to you, will you review those? So they're not I, exactly self-published, but, you know, it's not a major publisher, the writer didn't get an advance... I I think my main line about reviewing would be that that I want to review books that are available. Mm-hmm. I don't want someone to have to uh, search around, do a special order, right? You know, because I you know we talk a lot about Amazon, but uh, but as as far as I know, most books are still bought at a bookstore, mm-hmm. and I think it's really important that that uh, at least when it's when I'm reviewing a book that it be available. Um, and uh, I can I could see micro publishing if you can't get a, a publisher a regular publisher to publish your book. But I think if you have a good book, I'd say keep trying to get it published. Keep talking to agents. Keep uh, uh, going after publishers. Uh, we always hear stories about people that have gotten dozens and dozens of rejection letters before making it big. And uh, I'd suggest that if you know that writers uh, who, who who have a quality product uh, go in that direction and keep on trying to find somebody to uh, to buy their book, and that way, you know, do, do go the old-fashioned way, get an advance, get a publisher who's publicizing your book, and 
editing your book and giving you a great cover. And I think most importantly, people forget this, but that uh, publishers have connections in the in the uh, bookstore industry. They can get books on the shelves. They mm-hmm. can get them uh, uh, onto those tables at the at the front of Barnes and Noble. Uh, they have those connections that uh, uh, smaller, tiny publishers or self-publishers just uh, don't have. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and uh, you know, in terms of you know lassoing an agent, editor, or if you're writing for magazines, an editor at a magazine, um, I think probably you know as well as topic, voice is really important. And um, it seems to me that you have a distinct voice, and I wonder if. If that, you know, if you think that figures into your success or if you worked at that to develop it or if you just learned how to be you on the page <laughs> at an early age. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, uh, it's a whole matter of uh, adjusting your voice to to what your client is. To You know, in some, I read a lot about medical and health research, and I, and I keep that very serious because that's the tone that's expected. But I, for me, if, if I can be a little, have a little bit of humor, um, uh, kind of like coming up to the line of snarkiness, but hopefully not crossing it over, at least very often, uh, <laughs> I can, I, I try to do that. So I'd, I'd say if you have a voice and if you're, uh, you know, think about what uh, kind of person you are. Are you funny? Are you, are you uh, incisive? Uh, are you, a, are you a, uh, authoritative in terms of uh, being a specialist and knowing a lot, you know, figure out what your what your uh, you know who you are and what sets you apart, and try to get that across in your writing. Get across some of your personality uh, if you have one, and uh, and, <laughs> and if you don't, if, if you don't have one, well, uh, maybe let me borrow one from somebody else. But, but like your personality, I think is very very peppy, and I think that uh, if you have trouble, Barbara, you know, borrow Barbara's personality. <laughs> Just don't tell her. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been called peppy, so thank you so much. I'm going to take that with me this this afternoon as perky. I... Uh, <laughs> perky. Oh, my God. Okay, a perky Babs. Um, you know, well, but it is it is true. I mean, the voice, you know, whatever. And I have, I mean, I, I'll have students occasionally who, uh, or, or even friends, who um, I, I know of is funny and upbeat, and they make me laugh. And then when I read the writing, or first drafts anyway, it's so serious. And I say, but you're funny. Why don't you get any of your humor in your work? You know, well, I think I, a, a key thing is to, uh, yeah, I've seen the same thing happen with people that write very stiffly when they're not a stiff personality. And I think they, they feel like writing has to be as have a certain kind of stiffness to be i guess taken seriously and and it obviously it depends on the on what you're what you're writing but if uh i'd, I'd encourage people to, to write in a conversational style if that's if that works for the context you know if you're writing a, a serious academic paper this doesn't work obviously <laughs> but in a lot of uh, journalism stories uh, you can you can kind of pull back a little bit and, and let your hair down and not you know not use big ten dollar words and uh, treat it more like a conversation and let a little bit a little bit of yourself come out there in, in the writing yeah and it may it may mean that you you know you write somewhere other than a desk you maybe go to the beach I think we have a an ASJ Member, I wish I could remember his name. He wrote a writing life or where I write piece for us some months back. And he, you know, he says, I don't have an office because I don't do my best work in an office. I have to write different places. So he did a where I write piece, and there was a photo of him on the beach on a chair where he's meeting his deadlines. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like wherever you are, that you can be most you. Right, and I and I I try to I work at home, and I try to get out and and work at coffee houses and and bookstores and that kind of thing to uh, get some connections to people. Mm-hmm. And some people can't do that; they have trouble working in a noisy environment. But uh, I'd suggest that people, if they can, you know, bring your get a laptop and go to the library, go to the bookstore, go sit under a tree uh, where there's Wi-Fi, obviously, and uh, <laughs> and think about. Uh, Kind of getting a different environment that will get you more relaxed and think about relaxed writing that uh, 
that you could let your hair down, relax a little bit, and don't feel like writing has to be this kind of stiff, uh, that stiff writing that's a chore to read. Yeah. Yeah, and you're in San Diego where there are so many uh, cafes and bookstores and things going on. Um, and and I guess most cities would have that. Um, yeah, most cities will have. You know? I mean, you can uh, you know there's Starbucks like every other block, and <laughs> you know they can they can. I, I tend to prefer coffee houses that have comfy chairs because I I feel like I need to be comforted. So uh, um, <laughs> and I can sit in one for a few hours and and uh, enjoy a beverage and and be around people, which I, I think is one of the big problems with being self-employed is isolation yeah. and uh you can be in home all day with with the cat and uh and get tired of each other <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh so i think it's good to um you know and also to have a community online you know twitter is great for that uh yeah, here in san diego the local journalism community a lot of us are on twitter and so there's kind of like a, a conversation that goes along all day mm-hmm. uh, on twitter and if you can find where local people are hanging out on something like Facebook or Twitter, that can be a way to to make a connection uh, to keep you from going a little stir crazy. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of us in journal in the in freelancing used to work in newsrooms, which are kind of hotbeds of gossip and and people making fun of each other and and crazy characters. And you can find a little bit of that uh, on Twitter if you if you if you look if you look right. Well, it has been an extreme pleasure having you on and talking with you here. <laughs> so I uh, thank you so much for uh, oh, taking you. the time at such short notice. Thank you. That was Randy Dotinga. And again, you can follow him on Twitter at rdotinga.com. And what else can I tell you? I can tell you that I'll be back next week. Or Marie will. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of us will be here next week. We may be changing our um, time slot in October to Mondays at 5. And if, if you have any opinion about that, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. That would be 5 p.m. Pacific time. Curious how that might work for you. In any case, you're listening to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI FM in Irvine. <laughs>